by show of hands, and I'm sure we've all experienced this to at least some degree, but how many of you by show of hands have felt that the term spiritual growth or the process of spiritual growth has felt like it's either stagnant or really, really slow? Okay. So a good number of you. Now, second question is how many of you feel like saying the term spiritual growth is a little bit mystical? Like you don't quite know what that means exactly. Okay. Okay. A few of you are so-so. All right. So then what I will do first is clearly define what we mean when we say spiritual growth to make sure we're clear on that. And then secondly, we'll get into why things seem to go slow. There is a sense in which things are meant to be dealt with patiently. That's actually part of our growth is being patient with the process. We will get into that as well. But to start, what's spiritual growth? Now, here's what we don't mean. What we don't mean is that spiritual growth is just your spirit growing because the Bible says your spirit's perfect and your spirit actually can't do any more growing. The Bible says it's, it is renewed day by day, as in it's every single day, it is in the same state of newness as it was the day before. There is no decrease or increase, spiritually speaking. You are created according to the true righteousness and holiness of God, and nothing's going to change that. Okay? So, that must mean, then, spiritual growth is actually about the growth of your mind and the submission of your body which is interesting because that seems kind of counterintuitive that we'd call it spiritual growth when it's actually really not about our spirits growing. <laughs> um, and typically, and you know, many will say, okay, so spiritual growth, growth then simply means growing in the area of spiritual things, but that can also be misunderstood because what that causes us to do, and we've gone over this a little bit before, is that it causes us to separate our spirits from the rest of our being or the other two parts of our being and we try to make the spirit seem or we believe it to be more important than our mind and body. Now, I've said this before. I'm sure all of you guys have said this before. And I realized recently that I don't, I don't think it's actually biblical to say it. Um, and I'll explain why. You guys probably all heard this. Um, you are a spirit, have a soul, live in a body, right? Now, it is true. Yes, the Bible does say that this current body you have is like a tent. But it never actually says just that you are a spirit or you have a soul live in a body. It always refers to man as being spirit, soul, and body all equally and harmoniously united as one. That's how God originally designed us. So technically you are a spirit, a soul, and a body. We're designed to be all three of those in perfect harmony. Now we know that that's true because once Christ returns, the Bible says we're going to be given a brand new body and that body will be with us for the rest of eternity. So God has always wanted us to have a body. He created, created us with bodies on purpose. Just like with the Trinity, if you will, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, all three members of that Godhead are equally God and there is not one that is more important than the others. And I would argue it's actually the same way for us. Your body is just as important to God as your spirit. So is your mind. And we've gone over this a few weeks ago. We talked about your body being a temple, how God designed, created, intends for your body to be used for a purpose that's valuable to him. Now, so when we say spiritual growth, to wrap that part up, what we mean is that what is the process of growing in the things that make our spirits, souls, and bodies submitted to God and like Christ. That's the point. So, having been matured spiritually means that in your body, in your mind, and in your spirit, you're entirely submitted to God, sanctified, and like Jesus. That is God's best for you. It is not God's best to believe that your spirit's good and you're going to suffer in your body until you get to heaven. That's not God's best. What God wants is for every part of you to be yielded to him and every part of you to look like Christ. Amen? We can agree there. Okay. Now, 
One more thing before we read in Mark 4. We need to define in a biblical term what spiritual growth is, and that term is sanctification. You guys have probably all heard that before. You're being sanctified, right? Hebrews 10 says, you have been perfected forever, or excuse me, it says, uh, he, has, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. So it talks about you having been perfected, and then it talks about you being sanctified. The having been perfected means that when Christ died and rose again, and you put your trust in him, and you were joined with the Holy Spirit, that sealed you for eternal life and for the day of redemption, Ephesians 1 says. So you're, you're locked in. That is what being perfected forever is talking about. The being sanctified part is referring to the parts of you that still need to grow into that perfection that is currently in your spirit. So, this would mean then, and an example of this would be uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.23 that says, May the God of peace sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless. Right. And actually, in the next verse, it says, God is faithful who will do it. He's the one who does it. Yes. The being perfected forever? Yeah. I'll pull that up real quick. Okay. Good to go. All righty. So, being sanctified, according to 1 Thessalonians 5.23, means your whole spirit, soul, and body being preserved blameless. That's what sanctification is. It, 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 by definition, is the process of your entire being, all three parts of you, being blameless, yielded and submitted to God. Another example is in Philippians 3, in verse 21, it says that the working of Christ is that he would subdue all things to himself. So, if you have a spirit, soul, and body that is yielded to Christ as in subdued, to him, that would be a completed sanctification. And that com completed sanctification, uh, Philippians 3 is talking about when Christ returns to transform our lowly body. So there is this sense in which the 100% sanctification won't be finished in terms of the new body that you will receive until after Christ returns. That would be the, the final step in the process. And Christ does that when he returns. Until that day, however, we are commanded, and this is what 1 Thessalonians 5 is about, to have our whole spirit, soul, and body sanctified. And it says completely. Now, it's important that we establish this because this means then that you are setting that sanctification as the goal or mark, if you will, of growing spiritually or growing in the things of God. If you make the goal of your growth in Christ simply to be a better person, you're not going to get far. And maybe that's a first step for somebody, not to discount that, but we have to make sure in our minds we understand what the real goal is here. The real goal is that in your spirit, in your mind, and in your body, you look like Christ. That's the goal. Christ wants to transform us to be conformed to his image. And that's sanctification. So, if you're being sanctified, that's going to mean there's going to be progress in your mind and body towards the image of Christ. How he lived, what he believed, what he accomplished. Amen? Working out our salvation. With fear and trembling. Correct. Yep. That's another good one. That's Philippians uh, 2.13 mentions that. So or excuse me, verses 12 and 13 of Philippians 2. So now, Mark 4. This is the parable where Jesus explains as a foundation for the entire life in Christ how you grow, what it looks like. Did you have a comment? I had a comment to the previous section. Yeah, you can go for it. Yeah, we haven't read it yet. So you, said, oh, so you said that we're completely sanctified in our body when Christ returns, but it's up to us through the renewal of our mind and repentance, just as Christ was to, we can get to a point of perfect repentance in Christ. 
Uh, I'll clarify that right now. Yeah. So, okay. This this would become an entirely separate teaching, so I'm not going to get into it in detail. But I'll just leave with you a comment. The Bible says, there's two of them that I think are favorites of mine. One of them, we were talking about this yesterday, Jacob. 2 Peter 1 verse 10 says, Be diligent to make your calling and election sure, for if you do these things, you will never stumble. Greek word means sin or error. Another example is uh, 1 John 2, and I believe it's verse, it's either verses 2 or verse 12. Uh, that's a different one. Um, that says, he who loves his brother abides in the lighters, and there's no cause for stumbling in him. It's either 2, 12, or 20. I need to verify that just to make sure that I don't get that wrong. It's, Ten. Yes, ten. Okay. Yeah, he who loves his brother. Thank you for the correction there. First John two ten. He who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. Then what Jacob just mentioned two six says he who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk even as he walked. So. You have these two verses, there's many others I won't get into, that say, if you love as Jesus loved, you will walk as he walked, and there will be no cause for stumbling or for sin in you. So the question then becomes, is it possible to love others here and now as Jesus did, to the same degree that he did? And biblically, the answer would be yes, because verse 6 says, you ought to walk even as he walked. If you say you abide in him and John or John 13, Jesus specifically commanded us. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. So why would Jesus command us to do something that's impossible? Right. And if he says this is his commandment and John says, if we walk in his love, there's no cause for stumbling. Then that would mean you wouldn't stumble. So the principle here, and I'm not going to explain myself. I know I'm opening a huge can of worms. If you have questions, you, we can talk about it later. But principle here is that it is possible in this life, because Jesus modeled it, to grow in his love to the point that we're not stumbling, but we still, according to Romans 8, have a body that's dead because of sin, which means this body is still going to be imperfect. But you can have this body completely submitted to the Holy Spirit, even though it's not new yet. And Jesus modeled that because the body that he had wasn't a glorified one until after he rose again from the dead. Before he died and rose again, he was tempted in all things as we are, and yet he overcame by the Holy Spirit. So we can do the same thing. Um, so keep that in mind. There is a goal, a potential in Christ that is way, way, way higher than most people realize. And it's important just at least for today, for this teaching, to make sure you understand that the standard is this complete sanctification. That's the goal. It's what we press on towards. And we have to make that our goal. Otherwise, if we settle for less, then we're not ultimately going to be growing the way that we need to. Amen? So set your goal at Scripture. Make sense? Keep it at what Scripture says. Don't settle for less than that. Okay, so, parable of the sower. That's a question. Go for it. So you said, did I write this down right? Being sanctified are the parts in my spirit that still need to be improved or like Christ or moving towards Christ. Sanctification is the spirit. No. So remember what I said earlier? Your spirit's perfect. Okay? You don't need to grow in your spirit anymore. What needs growth is your mind and body. So sanctification is my mind and your body the body comes after but yeah your mind starts with your mind starts with the mind yeah yeah right, thank you for the clarification yep well, okay so sanctification of your spirit when does that happen right when you're born again because like for example psalm i have it written down actually psalm 31 5 through 6 or verse 5 excuse me says to you into your hands i commit my spirit right 
So the, it's the commitment. In other words, when you f- choose to follow Jesus and put your trust in him, you're joined with the Holy Spirit. That's the born again experience. That is the submission of your spirit to God. That's a one time event. Once it happens that one time that your spirit doesn't need any more growth. It's done, right? It's done. After that, sanctification is all about your mind and body. Once you're born again, your entire life following Jesus is about submitting your mind and body to the Holy Spirit. Question? Okay, so what do you do with the scripture that says a broken spirit you cannot bear? Sure. So Lisa's question is the scripture that says, um, are you referring to Psalm 51, like the sacrifices of a broken spirit? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. So that would just simply be most basic explanation is that spirit is used in particularly the Hebrew scriptures to refer to the uh, heart or the emotion or feeling that a person might have. So, for example, we might say, um, you know, that lifted my spirits. We don't literally mean your spirit was lifted. What we, what we mean is that it, it gave you joy. It encouraged you. It, it helped your heart, if we're to use that term. So spirit in Hebrew, Hebrew scriptures is also used to refer to your feelings, thoughts, inner senses, emotions, that sort of thing. Uh, but in terms of the department of you that is your spirit, literally, that's been perfected. And there's there's no more growth that will happen with that. Yeah. I have a question. Sure. Um, 2 Corinthians 7.1, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Mm-hmm. So if our spirit is perfect, how can it be filthy? Like, what is, what is he trying to say there? Sure. So that, that verse, the spirit it's talking about would not be yours. Because which, which spirits are filthy? Demons. Demons. Right? So if you're being, like we mentioned in previous teaching last week, if you're giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, that would be spiritual filthiness. Right? So filthiness of the spirit doesn't mean your spirit being filthy. What it means is filthiness that is spiritual in nature, right? So that would be doctrines of demons, deceiving spirits. Uh, Anytime somebody is led astray or deceived by the enemy in some way, shape, or form, that would be filthiness of the spirit, if that makes sense. Does that answer the question? Okay. I was actually just thinking about that verse last night, so glad you brought that up. Okay, we got to move forward. Parable of the sower. Your growth as a believer is used with the illustration of the growth of a seed or a plant. If you understand how Jesus described growth in this parable, it will set you up for success in your life, in your own growth. So it's very, very important. We're going to skip to his explanation of the parable. So that's going to start in verse 13 of Mark chapter 4. He said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? That's him saying, if you don't get this, you won't get anything else. So this is very important. The sower sows the word. And these are the ones by the wayside where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. Matthew 13's account of this says Satan steals it when person doesn't understand it. So keep that in mind. We'll get to that later. These likewise are the ones sown on stony ground who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with gladness. They have no root in themselves and so endure only for a time. Afterward, when tribulation or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they stumble. Now, these are the ones sown among thorns. They are the ones who hear the word and the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things entering in choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. But these are the ones sown on good ground, those who hear the word, accept it, and bear fruit, some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundred. Now that last verse, some bear thirtyfold, sixty, some a hundred, this means some people bear more fruit than others, which means it is partly, or largely I should say, in your control how much fruit you bear. God brings fruit out of everyone who's one of his. Because the fruit of the Spirit is, go down the list. But how much fruit you bear is in your control. So we're going to talk about how you bear a lot of fruit. Because that's the goal. 
Jesus says that one of the reason, ways that we're identified as his disciples is that we bear much fruit. That's in John chapter 15. It says that. We'll get to that later as well. Okay. So, let's just start with verse 14. The sower sows the word. The Bible says you're born again of an incorruptible seed, which is the word of God. 1 Peter 1, 23 says that. The seed is the word. Now, if you guys know anything about gardening or planting seeds, before you can plant a seed, what do you have to make sure of first? The soil, right? Prepare the soil, cultivate, till the soil, prepare the soil. You can't actually start with the seed. You have to start with the soil, right? This is where a lot of Christians miss it because we think that it's enough just to read the Bible, which is, or just to go to church and hear good teaching. Is that sowing seed? Yes, it's sowing seed. But what does that dismiss? The soil. And what determines what the soil is like? According to the parable. The sower sows the, the seed or the word, but what determines the condition of the soil? Yeah, what's in the soil? Your mind, your heart, yep. He says things like tribulation that arises, people get discouraged, right? Then you have cares of the world, worries, distractions, deceitfulness of riches, right? Those are things it says entering in choke the word. In other words, if you have the seed mingled with those things, that's bad soil, seed's not going to grow. So rule of thumb, it isn't enough just to come to church and read the Bible if, that, if there's nothing else you do. If that's all you do your whole life, there's not going to be a whole lot of growth. There's going to be some, because if you sow seed, you know, some will fall on good ground. Some will fall on the wayside, so on and so forth. But the soil is very important. Now, Jesus talks about how, or talks about features of bad soil. But in order to have good soil, there's specific instruction he gives in Luke chapter 8. And then there's a psalm. Psalm chapter 1 talks about this as well. So let's start with let's start with Luke chapter 8. So go to Luke 8. This is Luke's account of the same parable, parable of the sower. Uh, 15. 15. Of Luke 8, he's describing good soil. The ones that fell on the good ground are those who, having heard the word with a noble and good heart, keep it and bear fruit with patience. You also have James chapter 5 that talks about a farmer waits patiently for the precious fruit of the earth. That is talked about in James 5 verses 7 through 8. Patience is key, according to Jesus, to having good soil. He also mentions a noble and good heart. That's about sincerity. So it talks about your motives and your patience. And those two things are key, according to Jesus, to having good soil that allows you to receive seed and actually have it grow and produce something. Now, what is, and okay, we'll start with the noble heart. When it comes to sincerity, take, for example, an unbeliever who doesn't believe that the Bible is true, but attends a Bible study just to find ways to twist the word and use it against Christians. Is that somebody, even though they're hearing the word, is that somebody with a good noble heart? No. Why? Yep, yep, using it for a deceitful purpose, yep. But God can use it and does. And he will, he will. But what brings a person from not a noble and good heart to a noble and good heart, ultimately, is when a person believes it, when you come to faith, right? When a person becomes born again, person has their heart changed, is what Ezekiel talks about. That's that moment when a person, the Bible says, is given the ability to actually heed the word of God, put it into practice, and be obedient to it. 
36, the new heart. Remove from you a heart of stone, give you a heart of flesh. Yeah, Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27 says that. So, step one, of course, is you got to be saved. The Ezekiel one I just mentioned, Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27. Yep. Step one, you got to be saved. You got to be born again. After you're born again, this actually is also about the submission of, of the spirit that we talked about earlier, right? When you commit your spirit into the hand of God, that's yielding yourself to him to be born again. That's the first step. That's taken place. Hopefully for all of you in the room, you're born again, you're saved. Now you're in the position to be able to work on your motives. Make sure, what's your intention here? Is your intention here just to fulfill a religious obligation or is it because you actually want to grow? Do you have it in your heart to honor and please God? That's in your heart. That's, a, that's the motive issue. That's the noble and good heart. And that's what's important. That allows you to receive the word and actually produce. James chapter 1 says that's receiving with meekness the implanted word. 1 Peter 2.2 2 says, desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow. He says it's important that you actually want it. It's important that you desire it. And James says it's important that you receive it with meekness. That's a humility. You're submitted to it. You're not imposing your own agenda on the scriptures, but you're saying, Lord, I want to yield myself to your word. You mold me into whatever you please. These are statements of motive. Very important. You have that. You're born again. Then there's patience. Why do you think patience is important? For having good soil. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Rushing the growth of a plant. Uh, I did this when I was a kid. <laughs> One time we, we planted watermelons in my, uh, my parents had this little garden in the backyard at the time. And we planted watermelons. And I wanted these watermelons to be ready so bad. I remember hating the waiting process. And I went out there and there was only one because it wasn't very good soil, ironically. Um, and <laughs> there was only one watermelon. And it was about that big. And it was still white and it had a few green lines on it. But it, was, it wasn't ripe at all. And I just wanted to convince myself that I could eat it. So I cut it off. As soon as I cut it off, you can't put it back on. <laughs> it's over at that point. I cut it open. I was so excited to take a big bite. It was nasty. <laughs> so bitter. <laughs> it was just, it was like eating an acorn. Have you ever tried to eat an acorn before? Um, and it was, it was gross. I was very disappointed. Didn't get any more watermelons. I was very sad. Now, here's the thing. If I had waited, would that watermelon have ripened and grown more? Yeah. And it would have been great. But because I wasn't willing to wait, I forfeited the growth process and tried to make it tasty before it was time. And I completely lost all hope for that watermelon to ever grow anymore. People do the same thing for themselves when it comes to spiritual growth, which is where we want things to happen fast. That impatience stunts your growth. So if you want things to happen now, that's an attitude that you have to get rid of if you're going to have good soil in your heart. Now, we could get into the things you can do to grow in patience, which I'm not going to get into now. We might be able to get to that at the end, and we might have to save that for next week. But number one, patience is very important. And by definition, patience is being willing to wait, but with a cheerful joyful and thankful attitude no matter how hard it is that's what patience is patience isn't just waiting anybody can wait for something what very many people can't do is be able to wait while it's hard cheerfully that's what a lot of people can't do and that's what we have to focus on if you want to have good soil so any way in which you can cultivate patience in your life will help you have fertile soil so you can grow so the word can grow in your life. Amen? Okay. So, that's good soil. Next, what we get into is what else cultivates good soil. If you go back to Mark 4, or if you read it out of Luke 8, Jesus talks about the weeds, the thorns, the stones. When he mentions the rocky soil, he says, as tribulation arises for the sake of the word, and immediately they stumble. That's actually a lack of patience. Because what happens? You're excited about a word, Something comes up that's hard, that resists that word, and you give up on it. 
that's a lack of patience, right? You're not willing to endure cheerfully through a trial. So having patience is the antithesis of having stony soil. Say what again? Uh, having patience is the antithesis of stony soil? That? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. According to Jesus. Yeah. So if you want to make sure your soil isn't rocky and it's good, patience. Okay. Next thing is he says the thorns. Now the thorns, cares of the world, deceitfulness of riches and desire for other things. I think it's interesting how a lot of us miss this, that we try to go to church, be in Bible studies, read our word, whatever it might be. But we have all these distractions, all these other things that we desire, all these things that we care about that we really shouldn't be caring about so much. All these things that he calls it the deceitfulness of riches, where you think you're doing better than you are because you have money, so on and so forth. Those things choke the word and they, they grow with the word in the sense that just because you're growing in your knowledge of the word doesn't mean the weeds aren't growing. They grow at the same time and eventually they choke it out. So the point is, in order to have good soil, to start out right, you need to be patient and also make sure you're getting rid of the distractions in your life. And we could sum that up simply with repentance. The more you repent in your life, the more you turn away from things that are harmful to your growth, the more fertile the soil of your heart is going to be and the more fruit you will produce in your life. And anything you can imagine that is a worry, you can worry about money, you can worry about your job, so on and so forth. Worry, worrying about those things, worrying about money, having distractions, that's what that Greek word for cares means, the distractions of the world, desires for other things. It can be hobbies, it can be television, it can be your cell phone, it can be relationships, anything that is not contributing to pleasing, glorifying God and edifying you. Those things choke the word. Repenting from those things helps you have good soil. If you don't repent of those things and try to grow in the word, it's going to be a very slow process. Yes. In the, the way I think about this is that um, you talk about the, it's almost the, caring and tending of the soil, the weeding, the pulling out the rocks, adding amendments and nutrients, which is like the word. It's like, so our part is repentance, God's part is the sanctification, and they kind of are hand in hand through that time of patience. That's the, that patience is our continual repentance, his continual sanctification. That's kind of how I'm thinking about it. I don't know. Yes, yes. Okay, so one thing that stands out to me about that, so I agree with that. Um, 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says, one man sows, another waters, God gives the increase. In Mark 4, I believe it's in... Yeah, 28. The earth yields crops by itself. First the blade, then the head. After that, the full grain in the head. But when the grain ripens, immediately he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. The earth yields fruit of itself. That's a cross-reference with 1 Corinthians 3 where Paul says, God gives the increase. In other words, it's the job of the farmer to cultivate the soil, plant the seed, and to water it. But who makes the seed grow? God. The earth yields fruit of itself, right? So, it's God's job to actually bring forth the fruit. Your job is to take care of the soil. And there are things that you can add to the growth that encourage the growth of that fruit. But point being, it's ultimately of God in the sense that it's a miracle that things grow at all. And you can even see this naturally when you sow a seed. That seed is, scientifically speaking, dead. There's really, you, you can't put it under a microscope and like see any growth for whatever reason. Nothing happens till you put it in dirt and add some water and now you have a plant. It's still a phenomenon to this day how that works. And that's part of how God designed it. You plant, you sow, you water, you take care of the soil. God brings the increase. So in summary to what Brian was saying, repentance is on us. Taking care of the soil is on us. Sanctification happens as a result of that. But the increase of that ultimately is a miracle comes from God. So don't put your trust in yourself. We're leaning on God for the increase, but we still have a part to play in it. 
right? We still got to take care of the soil. Taking care of the soil is our job. That's not God's job. That's our job, right? So put away worries, cares, distractions, things that weigh or slow you down and make sure you're willing to yield to patience and that will help you have good soil. Amen. Now, next part, this gets into one other thing that's important for good soil. And this is what you're planted by. And this is a specific kind of care of the world. And this is what uh, Psalms 1 is about. So go to book of Psalms. The first Psalm gets into this. One of my favorites. Psalm 1, verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by what? Rivers of water. Oh, thank you. That brings forth fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. Leaf that shall not wither is a phenomenon in the sense that it's saying it doesn't matter what season, the leaves don't dry up. It's always producing fruit all year long. That's the point. Brings forth fruit in its season, planted by rivers of water. Where you're planted. This is another reference to soil. Good soil you're going to find oftentimes by rivers. This is why irrigation works so well. You get flowing, moving water, a source of water next to what you want to grow. It helps the soil stay fertile. So this means if you go into the middle of the desert and you pull out the rocks, you pull out the weeds that happen to be growing, you add a ton of water and you plant a flower. Is that flower going to grow? In the desert. Not a cactus. No. Now, the reason why is because you can add water, but the thing is, desert soaks it all up. And there's, there's no continual source of water in that region where you're planting. Now, if you're talking about, yeah, something like a cactus, that'd be different. But we're not cacti. <laughs> we grow differently than that, right? And so the point is not just that you pull things out of the soil that make it bad. You have to make sure the region you're planted in is also conducive to good soil. Now, according to Psalms, that says rather than walking in the counsel of the ungodly, standing in the path of sinners or sitting in the seat of the scornful, you delight instead in the law of God or the word of the Lord. Now, what would be a modern equivalent of the counsel of the ungodly standing in the path of sinners or sitting in the seat of the scornful. Exactly. People you hang out with. Standing in the path of sinners is when people look at the road you're walking on, do they see you walking with and in the same direction as unbelievers? That's the point. Your relationships. Sitting in the seat of the scornful is where do scornful people hang out? Where do they sit? And are you sitting with them? That's the point. So being planted by rivers of water means meditating on the word, but while not being in companionship with the ungodly. First Corinthians 15:33 says, "Evil company corrupts good habits. If there's evil company in your life, that is just like being planted in the desert where there's no source of water. There's no rivers. There's nothing to keep the natural state of that soil fertile. So everything dries up. That's what it's like. So if you try to walk in the law of God or try to walk meditating on the word, but then you're constantly hanging out with the ungodly and that's where your companionship is, you're not going to grow. So this is why the church is so important. Having believing friends, not just that you see when you show up at a you know, church gathering on a Sunday, for example, but you actually have believing friends you can be in fellowship with where when there's no one else to hang out with, you can hang out with them and that you're not just left with 
your coworkers at work all the time. Sometimes you can't escape that simply because we have to go to work, but your friendships, your companionships, your fellowship should be with believers, like-minded believers. Very, very important. This is why when we encourage people to grow spiritually, we always encourage them to be in the church in some way, shape, or form. In other words, we want them to have good fellowship. This is a really important part of it. And let's not downplay this. And if you ever want to explain to somebody else the importance of having a church family, you can use this passage of scripture and you can use the parable of the sower and say, hey, if you want to grow, the Bible says you need to be planted by rivers of water. And that includes making sure that your fellowship is with good, godly people um, and not with those who are ungodly. Amen? Okay. So, so far, we have your repentance and your patience, good fellowship, Both of those have to do with cultivating good soil and being planted in the right spot. Now we come to sowing the word. This is where reading the Bible becomes that much more important. Now remember as we started with that if you start by saying all you have to do is read the Bible, but you don't address repentance and fellowship, it creates a problem for that seed that's sown, right? So, That's why it's really good when it comes to a new believer. One of the first things you can tell a new believer is, hey, start with repentance. What are some things that you can remove from your life that are distractions? And get around healthy people, believing friends. That's a great place to start a new believer at. Great place. Then, okay, those things are established. Let's get you in the word and focusing on it. This is where renewing the mind comes into play. The word is sown when you hear it, ultimately. Romans ten seventeen says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Then you have Romans 12, 2 that says that you're transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is step two of the sanctification process. Your spirit was sanctified when you got saved. Your brain comes next. This is where most of the work comes in. This is the part that takes the most patience, I would say because it's intended to be a long process. It doesn't have to, you don't have to think of it as it's going to take my whole life to be able to overcome certain things. That's not what I mean by long. Long as in you will continue to renew your mind your whole life. In that sense, it's a long process. But there will be and should be noticeable growth. And there will be, because God promises that there will be. There will be fruit. second part of sanctification process is renewing your mind and what else there's committing your spirit to be born again then there's renewing your mind and then there's the submission of your body which we'll get into later yeah three steps spirit soul and body that's sanctification okay so simplest form the way that the word is sown is by hearing the word of god and that can be in form of biblical teaching or in simply reading and studying the bible for yourself Best case scenario is that people learn how to study the word for themselves. That's how you begin the process of renewing your mind. That's how you get the word sown in your heart and in your mind. That begins the renewal process. Now, renewal, that Greek word means renovation. So renewal doesn't doesn't just mean adding good things. It means tearing out old things also. Just like if you want to renovate a house that is moldy and falling apart, you don't just bring in a bunch of nice furniture and set it in there alongside all the nasty stuff, right? That's not how you renovate a house. You have to tear out the old first. So renewing your mind means you take scripture, you read it. Here's what's supposed to happen. That scripture exposes something in you that you believe that's either wrong or harmful. You go, oh, the Bible says this, but I've been living this instead, or I've been believing this instead. You hear good teaching, and that teaching says, hey, the Bible says this. This is about who you are. This is part of your identity in Christ. This is what you're called to believe. Oh, I don't actually believe that yet, or I I didn't know that. That's where the renovation starts, because you realize something that's wrong. The word exposes that. You replace that false belief with the true one, and then continue meditating on that belief to make it part of you. That's what renewing your mind means. And you can accomplish that by just reading the Bible as and just skimming through it. You have to read intently enough, you peruse it enough that you're 
able to notice when scriptures expose something in you that is incorrect. That's why the Bible says scripture is profitable for correction and reproof. That's uh, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says that. The word is meant to correct you. When something is wrong, the word makes it right. That's renewing your mind. Amen? That's the point. That's what it, what it means to renew your mind when it comes to scripture. That's how the seed is sown. Now, watering the seed. This is something that uh, I learned something new about this, uh, studying this for this teaching. Um, God showed me a scripture that I didn't connect the dots with before. So you've got sowing the word, renewing your mind. What do you guys think watering the seed is? Take a guess. Dre. I feel like watering the seed would be like using the word and actually letting it penetrate your, your mind to renew it. That would be continuing the mind renewal process. Yes, that's part of sowing. There is, the watering does include some of that, yes, but. Yeah. Fellowship. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking to others about what you've learned. Speaking to others about what you've learned. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Carlos, did you have a comment? Mike. Obedience to the word. Obedience to the word. Yes. That was what I was looking for. All these are also included. Um, here's why. So, when you have simply reading and studying the word, of course, that is included in the watering process because Paul, when he said, um, I have sown, Apollos watered, what he was talking about was Paul would bring the gospel to a group of people, he would leave, somebody would come after him and add to what he taught. So that means watering, yes, also includes hearing more. Uh, having your understanding refined, so on and so forth. So continuing to know and grow in your knowledge, yes, is part of the watering process. However, when it comes to fellowship, that's yes, also included. But it's specifically the kind of fellowship that is out of obedience, to Carlos's point. So here's why. Scripturally speaking, take Proverbs chapter 11, verse 25. Let's go there next. Proverbs eleven twenty five. The generous soul will be made rich, and he who waters will also be watered himself. Yes. So back to the watering that you said. So wouldn't it be like when, like you said, that um, the word and knowledge that you obtain, you spread to others, and the way that you get water is also by watering someone else in the Thank you. Yes, exactly. That's what this verse is talking about. In other words, if you take what you learn, you turn it around and be generous with it, the generous soul will be made rich, right? You give that word to other people, that's what waters you. Because when you water others, you yourself are watered. So that would mean turning around what you learn and teaching it to someone else. That's part of it. Also, obeying that word in some way, shape, or form. It depends on the passage or scripture that you're talking about. But one example would be, let's say you're learning about the love of God. Big, important topic scripturally. You're learning about God's love. Now, an example of how you might be watering that seed of love would be understanding it for yourself, maybe studying that with someone else, sharing it verbally. That's part of the watering process because as soon as you take something you know, you impart it to someone else who doesn't know it. You're sowing and watering them at the same time. That waters you. That would be one thing. Second thing would be, what are loving actions that I can take? How can I be selfless in some way? How can I sacrifice what I want for someone else's well-being? Taking that kind of action, that kind of obedience would also be watering. You're doing something for someone else is how you water the seed. So any scripture, how can I turn this into something that benefits someone else more than myself? That's how you water the seed. 
If you do that with your study, that's where you're going to see growth start. And that's why it's very biblical to say the teacher learns more than the student. Because whatever you turn around into something you give to somebody else waters you. And watering helps growth. Right? Amen? Okay. Then, of course, this includes fellowship simply because if you're going to be giving to other people and teaching to other people, you're going to be uh, entertaining that fellowship at the same time because you're going to build relationships with people in the process of doing that. So if you're pursuing fellowship and you're sharing the word and obeying it, that's how you water the seed. So in summary, I would simply say that the, the combination of sowing and watering is really about learning and then obeying. Learning, obeying, learning, obeying, learning, obeying is the sowing, watering combo. And the more you can do both, the faster you're going to grow, the more effectively you're going to grow. Now, lastly, this is where what God does comes into play. And that's actually bringing forth fruit. The increase comes from God. A few scriptures that talk about fruit. Galatians 5.22, you've got the fruit of the Spirit. There's love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance, or self-control. Philippians 1.11 says that we can be filled with the fruit of righteousness. Ephesians 5.9 says the fruit of the Spirit is in all righteousness and truth. I'm actually going to pull that one up. Ephesians 5. In verse 9, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Luke 3, 8 says that we can bear fruit worthy of repentance. And then there's a couple other scriptures that talk about a different kind of fruit. Now we'll get to those in a moment. So far, with the verses that I've just mentioned, there's the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, there's the fruit of righteousness, and then there's the fruit of the Spirit in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. These are all internal qualities. Righteousness, truth, goodness, love, peace, joy, all of those things are internal realities that obviously have an effect on how you behave, how you live your life, how you conduct yourself. But it starts inside. So you could put the fruit of the Spirit or the, the fruit that comes out of your life is really in two categories. The first is what I just mentioned, and those are the characteristics or qualities of Christ or of the Holy Spirit that show up in your life. That's the first category. Second category of fruit is talked about in Philippians and Romans. So Philippians 1.22 talks about this. Philippians chapter 1, verse 21 and 22, we will read. It says, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell. So he says, if I keep living, in other words, if I stay alive on this earth, this means fruit from my labor. What do, you think is, what do you think he's talking about? What's the fruit of his labor? People. Yep, exactly. In other words, if I keep living, I have more opportunity to continue to spread the word and to make disciples. And the more disciples you make, that's fruit from your labor, right? Then you've got Romans 1, 13. Romans... 1, 13. It says, Now I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now, that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among other Gentiles. I am a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise. So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. So he's saying, I want to show up, I want to come to Rome, so I will have fruit among you guys, just as I have fruit among other people in different cities. I want to preach the gospel in Rome also, which makes the fruit, what? 
people. Yep, same thing. He's saying, I want to preach in Rome because that means I get to make disciples in Rome. Right? So, having you having fruit also means you having in your life people that came to Christ because you either sowed or watered them in some way, shape, or form. So, two categories. You've got the qualities and characteristics of Christ, and then you have the people. Both of those are fruit that come out of your life. They should go together. If you try to put one without the other, you end up dysfunctional. Because if you try to win a lot of people, but you don't really have the character qualities of Christ, it's a little difficult. <laughs> it's not going to be very effective. But if you want all the character qualities of Christ, but you're not really taking steps to make disciples, you're not using what you have. In which case, the fruit rots on the tree and falls with nobody to enjoy it. Right? So sharing Christ with others, using that to win people to Jesus, those two things together is what your fruit is. Now, Christ brings forth the increase of that, but according to Jesus in, I believe it's Luke, he mentions bringing fruit to maturity, which is about ripening. So apparently there's a way in which fruit is ripened in terms of our growth. We're going to look at that real quick, and this will be the last part of talking about this growth. Verse 14 of Luke chapter 8, we will read. Luke 8, 14 says, Now the ones that fell among thorns are those who, when they have heard, go out and are choked with cares, riches, and pleasures of life, and bring no fruit to maturity. So it's possible to have fruit in your life, but the cares of the world of distractions can cause it not to ripen. That's what bringing it to maturity means. So you can have the character of Christ in your life. In other words, there's evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit. There's people who are coming to Christ. You let distractions slide. You let things continue, and it can cause to the process of bringing that, making that fruit ripe. It can stunt that process. You can't bring fruit to maturity. And this is typically, I think this happens a lot because people will grow, 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 and then it feels like they plateau. How many of you guys have been there? Where it's like, what do I study next? What do I do next? Why doesn't it feel like things are maturing, right? All of us have been there. That's called not bringing fruit to maturity. And the Bible says what causes that to happen is the thorns that choke out the word. So in other words, more repentance. And this is why, according to Hebrews 6, verse 1, it says, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation. Same Greek word for maturity that's used there for perfection. Bringing something to perfection is the same thing as bringing it to maturity. So in other words, bringing something to maturity requires you have a good foundation in the elementary principles of Christ first, then you move on to other things. You also have... Uh, Romans, or excuse me, Revelation 3, verse 2 says, Strengthen the things that remain. And 1 Thessalonians 3.10 says, Perfect, or in other words, bring to maturity what is lacking in your faith. One more, back to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11 says, Now no chastening, this is the discipline of God, seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who are trained by it. In other words, being corrected painfully is necessary to bring forth fruit. So, bringing something to maturity requires that you continue repentance, perfect obedience, which means bring obedience to maturity, perfect what's lacking, strengthen what remains. So this requires an awareness of where are the areas of lack in my life and how can I focus on those things? 
In other words, bringing fruit to maturity requires going from a general study of the word to what are the specific things I'm lacking in and how do I address those things specifically. That's how you bring fruit to maturity. So you have to know what's lacking, how can God correct me through this, and what can I do to address those things specifically. Those are the refinements, the perfecting obedience, if you will, that causes fruit to be brought to maturity. And uh, that's part of what Jesus mentions in, in Luke chapter 8. Lori, did you have a comment? Yeah. Yeah, I just wondered if you could explain the difference between the milk of the word and the meat of the word. And why do we, you know, why is it important to start with the milk? Yes, yes. So this is the, it's connected to the parable that we're discussing because there's an order to your study of scriptures and your learning of scriptures as well. For a lot of people, it's pretty common that you can just tell them, you know, read anywhere in the Bible will be good, you know, better than nothing. But in nearly every case, you're going to want to have somebody learning what's called the milk of the word first, something that's more digestible to them. And the milk of the word, according to Hebrews, if you go to uh, chapter 5, the end of, end of Hebrews 5, he says, by this time, verse, this is verse 12, Hebrews, Hebrews 5, verse 12. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. So the first principles of the oracles of God is what the milk of the word is. In other words, elementary school Christianity, the things in the Bible that are important to learn and know and understand first. Those things are listed at the beginning of Hebrews 6. That's where he says, go on to perfection after you've laid the foundation. This is the milk of the word. Repentance from dead works and a faith toward God. First two things a person is going to learn, even before they get saved. They hear the message of, I got to repent and got to believe in Jesus. So that means after you come to Christ, the two things that you want to refine first are your repentance and your belief. Learn how to believe Christ, believe God's word, learn how to repent. That's really important. Doctrine of baptisms, you get baptized. You learn what that means. Laying on of hands, you learn about receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. The most basic way you can minister to other people, lay hands on them, pray for them. That's an elementary principle. Then you've got the resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. That means there's a resurrection to come. You're spiritually resurrected. The new heart, new spirit, what does that mean for your identity? Eternal judgment is basic concepts of heaven and hell, eternal rewards, uh, that Christ is going to return one day, uh, and that the judgment that all of us will receive is, is eternal. Those are all concepts that Hebrews says are elementary principles. In other words, these things need to be taught to people first if they're going to have a good foundation in terms of the faith. Practically speaking, good books of the New Testament you can start a person off on to learn these things would be Romans, Galatians, actually I would say Matthew, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels I would say come first because that introduces Jesus so people know who they're believing in. So you've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, then Romans and Galatians. And that's where people learn about baptism, difference between the law and grace, what is the foundation of your faith, uh, eternal judgment spoken of in Romans. So if you want to do like a Bible study, you know somebody who is a new believer and you're just like, what do I study with them? It's a really good idea to do Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Romans, and Galatians. Great places to start. Um, and then you can move on from there. Yes. Go for it. So I was going to ask this earlier, but bringing something maturity, you mentioned three things, repentance, and I missed the last two. Um, so it's refining repentance. Actually, I would, all of it is kind of under that category, but the two subcategories are, uh, according to Revelation, strengthening what remains or perfecting what's lacking in your faith. That's the, f the first one. That's kind of finding the areas of lack that you can specific specifically identify, work on those things. And then there's receiving the correction of God that refines your understanding. So that would be like, what are the things I don't f 
fully understand in the word and you work on those things, that together with the refining of repentance is part of how you bring fruit to maturity. Now, what I would like to get into either next week or the week after would be how do you identify those specific things and how do you grow in those specific things? This is going to be more relevant for a person who's been a believer for longer because if somebody's a new believer, you pretty much just want to cover everything that you can. Make sure you start with the elementary principles, but it's a very wide spectrum of things you can study because they kind of just need to know everything they need to to start off. Once you start really bringing forth fruit, now you've got, how do I bring certain fruits to maturity? How do I perfect what's lacking? How do I strengthen what remains? That's what you have to get into next. And that we'll see. We could get into it next week. Um, just depends on um, how long it takes to go over uh, central things. Oh, excuse me. Yeah, so next Sunday we will not be meeting because it's Christmas Day. So no gathering next Sunday, but the Sunday after we will. So excuse me, my bad. So two weeks from now. In other words, the next time we gather on a Sunday. Yes. Yeah, it'll be New Year's Day. Um, yes. So two weeks, two weeks from, from today. We will not be meeting uh, next week. So just as like an introduction before we um, finish up here, when it comes to strengthening what remains or perfecting what's lacking, this gets into the specific fruits of the Spirit. In other words, how do you grow specifically in either love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faith, gentleness, uh, meekness, or self-control? How do you grow in those things? And it's going to be different for everyone. There are some things that are rooted in others, but you, somebody might have to work on, let's say, patience. Another person might have to work on faith. Another person might have to work on love. And you know which ones you have to work on based on an observation of what your life is like now, what you're weaker in, what you're stronger in. And scripture basically gives us instructions on how to find those things that remain, if you will, that you need to strengthen. Um, and knowing how to do that is really helpful because then you actually have some action steps rather than just, oh, I'll just read my Bible like I always did. Better than nothing, of course, but how do you get specific with it? And that's what we're going to get into moving forward.